Welcome to Cohen & Company's Chief Insights Tax Reform Edition podcast. This special series is designed to help business owners and C-suite leaders better understand the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and its potential impact. Hello, I'm Mike McGivney, partner in charge of Cohen & Company's Tax Department. Welcome to our inaugural episode of Chief Insights Tax Reform Edition. In today's podcast, we're going to focus on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or TCJA, or tax reform, by looking at how much tax reform really changed tax law, where we stand today, and where we go from here. I'm joined today by Randy Myroff, Cohen & Company CEO. Randy is also chair of the American Institute of CPAs Major Firms Group and serves on the AICPA's Board of Directors, as well as the International Accounting Group Advisory Board. He's going to give us some great insight into the industry's involvement and perspective to date, as, as well as what we might see next from tax reform. Thanks for being here, Randy. Why don't you start by giving us a little background on what events led to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act? Sure, Mike. Thanks. And it's uh, it's great to be part of this podcast. Those who know me well know that it won't be because of my in-depth tax knowledge, but I'm certainly very involved in different parts of the political process, both broadly and as part of the profession. So a couple of thoughts to maybe kick this off a little bit. We could talk a lot about specifics, things that that the AICPA PAC legislative folks there fought for, what they won, what they lost. For, for instance, um, avoiding the elimination of cash basis accounting for service organizations was probably one of the biggest wins the AICPA had. Uh, they, they had some losses too, and I'll try to give you some perspective on that. Um, certainly, uh, State taxes as being a business deduction on pass-throughs was a big loss. So the theory there is that if C corporations, non-pass-through entities, can deduct state taxes, then why should those in pass-through entities be penalized for that? So they didn't win that battle, and it ended up being a little bit of bartering. So there's three primary numbers that were kind of the umbrella for everything that happened behind the scenes. Uh, relative to the Tax Act. And interestingly, uh, and, and unheard of in the past, this was literally from September 27th until um, December 22nd. It was a very, very short period of time. Three numbers. The first one is 218. We can uh, talk all we want about it, but this is a political process. And 218 were the number of votes needed in the House to pass the Act. You had 235 Republicans 195 Democrats and seven vacant seats. We knew from day one that California, New Jersey, and New York were no votes because they are so heavily weighted in the state and local tax area, and they were never going to vote for a bill that eliminated that deduction for their constituents. And so everything that happened through this through this discussion, negotiation, had to do with how do we stay with 218 votes? How do we win with 218 votes? in the House. Secondly is 50. That's the number of votes that were needed in the Senate. I think it was 50 because there was a vacancy, because typically it would be 51. Um, there's there's reconciliation provisions that say, as, as long as you're only talking about budgetary and financial issues in any piece of legislation, it's a reconciliation um, exercise, and you only need a majority, as opposed to any normal bill where you need 60 votes because the, the, the Senate was always supposed to be the fallback. They were supposed to be the ones who really needed some kind of majority um, to make sure there was thought and process going into this. So no, number two was 50. How do we barter our way to 50 votes to get it passed through the Senate? 
And then finally, maybe most importantly, was $1.5 trillion. So $1.5 trillion was the maximum cost of the new law that was permitted under the bill that the GOP submitted. So that everything that they talked about back and forth was a plus or minus to that $1.5 trillion. So, for instance, the corporate tax rate in the initial law was to be 20%, not 21%. So when they were trying to negotiate for other deductions, they raised it by a point because they had to keep the $1.5 trillion set. So lots happened behind the scenes. Um, and again, it, it is a political process. And we've got to understand that educating our politicians and helping them understand what they're voting for is really, really critical, specifically in this kind of law. So it was a interesting behind-the-scenes process and uh, had a great view of seeing it both from the ICPA board perspective as well as from the local Greater Cleveland Partnership Board where I serve on the PAC committee. Thanks, Randy. That's great insight. So now we have to consider how this law affects uh, taxpayers. And, you know, frankly, it affects just about every taxpayer who's out there. Key changes or impacts that we see to many of our clients include entity choice. Now with the corporate tax rate dropping to 21%, there's um, much more discussion on whether, hey, should I remain a pass-through entity, which seemed to be the default entity of choice in the past, whether it be a partnership or an S-corp, or should I elect to, to you know, be a, a corporation where – um, you know, now subjected to a lower tax rate. And, you know, if we did, if you did elect to be a corporation, what does that mean to your company? You know, also estimating individual taxes. So for most individuals, the effective rate uh, has decreased. So obviously you don't want to pay higher, indiv- or higher estimated taxes throughout the year and then get a big refund later in the year. So cash flow became much more important. Um, and estimating individual taxes properly is really come to the forefront during this year while we're trying to sort through this new tax law. There's also uh, potential limitations on the deductibility of interest, which also affects entity choice, entity structuring. There's many, many depreciation changes, which are generally more favorable to taxpayers. And then there's also effectively a whole new tax regime for doing business overseas. So if you're doing business internationally, whether it's outbound to other countries or uh, having foreign investors invest into a company in the U.S., uh, there's a whole new set of tax rules that we are now dealing with and affect most taxpayers. Uh, you know, there's a perception it was it was rushed through, and Randy, I think you're you you saw that as well. What was passed seems to be more of a concept rather than actual law that's complete and can be carried out. So we're waiting for a lot of guidance right now. There's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, you know, we do need technical updates and some guidance. So you know, Randy, based on your seat of the table, can you comment on uh, you know why we don't have a lot of concrete guidance yet? on how to apply these new rules? In in terms of the law itself, there's a lot of folks who felt like this was much more of an outline than it was a law. Again, it was September 27th when the the GOP um, released its version of their proposal. And the time period from then until December 22nd was, they started December 22nd um, uh, discussing and considering it. And it was actually the 18th they started, the 22nd they finished. So very, very short time, even once they had a final bill for them to review. So lots of concern about interpretations, about um, scenarios that weren't contemplated and couldn't possibly be contemplated in that short a period of time. So the, and you know more about this than I do, Mike. So the next, the next phase will be technical corrections. And in the technical correction process, they'll go through many of these interpretations and try to help the taxpayer and the practitioners understand what they meant in certain sections of the law. 
So very difficult planning time now because in our case, we have to interpret what we think they meant. We've got to plan accordingly, and that may or may not be what comes out of technical corrections. But there's, again, behind the scenes, a much bigger, more complicated issue that all of us will have to deal with, both us as practitioners and our clients. And that is there's significant headwinds when it comes to the technical correction process for several reasons. First of all, just political pace. Things don't happen quickly, and we've got to figure out how to move it along because we're really playing in real time. Secondly, it's an election year. And while there may be noise this summer relative to interpretation or technical correction, it is almost a certainty that there will be very little done in terms of actual um, binding law. So very unlikely, other than chatter, that anything gets done till after the election, which is going to be a very frustrating thing in terms of our planning process. Third is the Democrats were a bit upset relative to process. And so they didn't feel there was proper time and consideration to have the right kind of discourse. And so um, we know we have two political parties. We know they don't always get along perfectly. And the Democrats are certainly going to use that as a way to be unhelpful. If that's not enough, just based on how politics work in general, this is the precise inverse of what happened relative to health care reform and Obamacare, where the Republicans felt like the Democrats rushed the bill through, too much left to, to chance. Uh, lots of cases where they said that the Democrats who proposed and voted on the bill didn't even understand the ramifications of it. And the Republicans, whether it was um, strategic or um, uh, logical or vindictive, who knows, they decided they were going to be very unhelpful in working through the cleanup process on Obamacare. And so the Democrats, I think, feel like um, now's our opportunity to kind of turn the tables a little bit. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, when you consider all those things, including an election year, is this is not a reconciliation process. Now we're getting into policy and the interpretation of policy, and they're going to need 60 votes in order to pass this. So sitting here today, if you go senator by senator or congressman by congressman, I understand this is a, the Senate that's got to get through this process. It's really, really hard before the election to see where those votes are coming from. And it's even harder when you think about the challenges Republicans will have in this election cycle. So technical corrections are going to be um, uh, they're going to be slow in coming. They're going to be complicated. And as again, as practitioners, we're going to have to be playing the odds with our clients and doing the best job we can of helping them through the planning process, knowing that literally the rules can change as the process unfolds. You know, along with that, we've seen uh, you know some states look at what Congress has passed and. You know, tried to start working their way around that. So you mentioned New York and California. Both of those states have tried to create workarounds with respect to the $10,000 limitation on state and local tax deductions. So what they've done is they've actually created a tax credit for a charitable contribution to a state fund. So in effect, there, there's no limitations on charitable contributions. There is a limitation on state and local tax deductions. By shifting that classification, or at least attempting to shift that classification, uh, at the federal level from a state and local tax deduction to a charitable contribution. Some of these states are trying to work their way around 
what the government, what the federal government's passed. Now, Treasury has come out and said, hey, we know what you're trying to do. We're not going to let you do, get away with that. Um, we're going to issue some guidance, which speaks to a, you know, a bigger issue about just guidance from the IRS. So, so the IRS is, has, you know, taken a step back and said, okay, we, we understand that there's some ambiguity in the law. Um, we understand that, you know, sometimes even some of the committee reports doesn't match what was passed as law. And uh, we need to issue some guidance. So the the IRS you know, publicly has said guidance is forthcoming. We've started to see a little bit of guidance through FAQs, um, but we expect some additional regulations and notices and, and and other publications to happen, you know, from the IRS through the end of the year. And as that's issued, um, you know, we're going to go from hey, we think this is advising clients, we think this is what's going to happen, to okay, here's what the IRS now says. Let's see what kind of position we can take. And, uh, you know, go from there. You know, with the states, Mike, it, it is interesting that since the recession and probably in an increasing way, the states less federal support. The states have been, as, as you know firsthand, exceptionally aggressive in trying to figure out ways to raise revenue. And it's become very, very complicated for taxpayers. It will be even more interesting. So we've seen our clients be very frustrated with the certainly the cost of state compliance, but they've also been very frustrated with the difficulty, the complexity in working with states who are sometimes illogical in in trying to assess tax, whether it's for personal property or uh, pass-through income where you really don't have nexus in the state. It's been complicated. And even if they're wrong, you've got to fight the battle. Probably the, the flunk with dignity for the clients at the end of the day has been, well, at least we get a tax deduction. So at least if we're going to pay tax that we're upset about. We get a deduction. Now you have a case where they're not going to get a deduction. So I think the the pressure on, um, on on us as practitioners and on our profession in general to really up our game relative to state and local taxes across the country is going to be a heightened sense of priority for all of us. Yeah, you know, Randy, definitely agree. We've you know the tax department. We've seen a lot of. Um, you know, you mentioned difficulty and complexity in aggressive states. We, we see that all the time. And, you know, being on top of uh, state compliance is ultra important these days. And, you know, frankly, there's, there's a lot of time and effort that goes into doing that and a lot of, a lot of education, uh, both at the practitioner level and the client level, to, to get everyone to understand that. Okay, so, so Randy, for, uh, from your viewpoint uh, in working with the AICPA, what's your take on where the IRS stands today? So cer- certainly the, uh, the IRS is the third partner in all this one way or another we, we've got to go we've got to go through that turnstile and we all know our clients know directly we certainly know on an everyday basis that the IRS has some um, some significant challenges right there's been identity theft issues there's been all kinds of artificial things that have caused them complexity but some of the basics at the IRS have really been under pressure because the IRS's relationship Treasury's relationship, with Congress has really not been very good. And so Congress, it's almost the inverse of what you would think would happen. Congress has significantly reduced funding the IRS, making it even more difficult. So at what point do you create a more trusting relationship and feel like you have the right resources to move forward? So three big problems at the IRS that we deal with every day. First, it's just plain service levels, whether it's a return phone call or not being on hold for hours and hours and hours, just just simple service that every one of our clients works on every day. Um, it's been it's been atrocious, and unfortunately, there's no one to complain to. 
because you can't even get through to the people who want to take your complaint. So that's been problematic. Secondly, which causes the first one, is capacity problems and resource problems because of funding. So they're challenged internally, and I would guess being the commissioner of the IRS or being one of the top leaders in the IRS may be one of the most difficult jobs in the country at the moment. And third, related to the first two, is a lack of investment in technology and infrastructure. So they need to keep up with the rest of the marketplace, and they, and they really haven't. So now here comes tax reform, where the IRS's technology platforms are going to be even more challenged, where they need to do simple things like make sure the forms agree to the law. So the IRS is going to be coming out with, with, with the tax forms for which we file on way before technical corrections go through. So a lot of pressure uh, at the IRS. What's happening today, and the ASCPA is exceptionally vocal in this uh, and trying to, to some extent, uh, play the middle. First of all, Treasury has requested significant additional dollars. I don't remember what the number is, but um, it's into the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been requested, and, and they've requested them saying that 90% of those dollars will go to the IT infrastructure part of being a better service provider. We all know that IT projects are very complicated, take longer than you hope they take, are more expensive than you hope they are. So there's a big bet there and, and, a, and a great deal of trust, and we'll see how that plays out. The AICPA has supported um, that notion for, for sure, uh, but with specific requirements that a certain percentage of funding be used to increase service levels in a measurable way. Again, not suggesting we should have a, a shorter line. We should just have people that have different skills and different abilities to answer more complex questions. And if we could do that, it's likely that it will create efficiency for the IRS down the road. So the AICPA is very involved, working very, again, very specifically, senator by senator, congressman by congressman, to help them understand how this could play out in a positive way instead of just letting the emotion of, well, the organization's not performing and we don't trust them and so we're not going to fund them and you have a self-fulfilling prophecy um, down the road. Unfortunately, and maybe the most um, difficult part of this will be, again, an election year. And so um, when we talk to politicians, um, very few believe there'll be any commitment in terms of specific funding for the IRS prior to the election, which means the time frame from the election period to when they need to perform is going to be exceptionally short and just causing some of the problems. So we, we've got a front row seat in the process. It's really, really important, and we'll do the best we can as much as the political process will let us do that. Yeah, ab absolutely. So, Randy, we have challenges with the IRS. We have an election year. We have a new tax law that we still need guidance from. And, you know, already, of course, there's been talk of tax reform 2.0. So, you know, what, what might this look like? What we're hearing is if there is a second tax bill um, this year, what we could be seeing is converting some of the temporary provisions uh, in, the, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act to permanent provisions. So one of the uh, requirements that Congress had to hurdle is reaching that $1.5 trillion mark. In order to do that, there's a sunset on a lot of provisions. Well, a year has passed. The math has changed, and now you know, you know what. What a lot of the Republicans would like to do is 
convert some of those provisions to permanent provisions. Uh, there's, there's also talk of addressing college savings. So uh, increasing the ability to, to save for college, uh, create tax credits, just create tax-advantaged um, ways to save. Uh, also, tax credits for working families. So this was an, an initiative of um, the, the Trump campaign uh, to to increase the benefits for working families. So you know we might end up seeing that in what we're calling Tax Reform 2.0. So while we wait, uh, taxpayers really do need to uh, continue moving forward and plan as much as possible. So we can only operate based on what we know, but sitting back and doing nothing is generally not a good course of action at this point. There's a lot of opportunities now. We need to jump all over those. There's a lot of excitement in the department, and we're seeing a lot of people very, very engaged in this process. So, so Randy, as we you know leave our listeners today and, and wrap up today's podcast, what's one takeaway? I would give you two. Um, you know, one of them's easy because there's nothing to do. So I'll give you that one first, and that's just hold on tight. Right? There's there's lots to come. Um, we'll make sure we push out lots of information as it happens on a real time basis. Again, we're in a great position to do that. Um, but but the the outline will turn into a full novel with uh, detailed chapters and and the more there is the more opportunity we'll have to plan but there will be some hold on tight type frustration that we're going to have to deal with uh, down the road the second thing I'd say is more complicated you know it's easy to sit back and be critical of the political process but it is our process and I think. We all need to appreciate the process and understand how that works. Um, whether you're directly involved in it, in it or not, you can support it by supporting people who you think have like-minded ideas, um, or you can get more active, either through your associations, um, th- through your local chambers, um, or find personal ways through those you're connected in to make a difference in that process because it's an important one for sure. Thanks, Randy. That's great advice. So with that, we're going to wrap up today's podcast. Look for more episodes in the near future as we dive into various aspects of the tax law that we discussed today. Thank you and have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Chief Insights Tax Reform Edition. Subscribe to this podcast series at cohencpa.com slash podcasts. To gain more entrepreneurial insights that may impact you, visit us at cohencpa.com impact. Cohen & Company is not rendering legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Information contained in this podcast is considered accurate as of the date of recording. Any action taken based on information in this podcast should be taken only after a detailed review of the specific facts, circumstances, and current law. 